John chapter 15. Have you ever lost a connection with somebody? You ever been close to somebody in your life and for some reason you lost the connection? Time went by and you decided something's wrong here. I'm not connected to this person anymore. You see, every one of us has periods of our lives where we're close to somebody and when we're distant. In fact, most of us will readily admit that many times the relationship that have been severed in our lives came because of a lost connection we had with that person. And what happens is many of us, we want to know what happened, but sometimes we don't dig deep enough to find out why. In fact, one of the reasons why a lot of marriages fall apart is not just because of one statement that a spouse made to someone else. It's because of a buildup and a loss of a connection between the two. What happens for many of us when it comes to our relationship with God, for those of us that are disciples of Jesus, is that the longer we're walking with God, the more easy it is for us to lose connection and not even realize why. This morning, as we look at the text in John chapter 15, I want to strongly urge you one thing. This is not a text for you to take lightly. This is not a text for you to go doesn't apply to me, I don't really care. This is a text that Jesus makes to his disciples. He makes a statement, and he says, you need to abide in me. He keeps repeating that word. And he repeats that word because it's important. The word itself is going to be the big thrust of the text this morning. And I want you to understand that a believer that does not abide in Christ is going to have a fruitless life, who's going to have an empty existence on this earth. Your life and my life will be wasted if we don't abide in Christ. It's that straightforward. Let's start reading in verse number one. We're going to look at two things specifically here in this text in verses one through 11. Number one, the connection, and number two, the application. Number one, the connection, and number two, the application. But we're going to start off with the connection here, but we'll read verses one through 11 here. It says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love." If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. You see, the context here of what Jesus is speaking to is the disciples that are left with him after Judas goes to betray him. This is really right after that happens that Jesus has a time with his disciples that have remained with him. In fact, we see a lot that's recorded in Scripture from the time Judas leaves to betray Jesus in John 13 to the actual betrayal and arrest in John 18. Jesus actually starts this passage with his final I am declaration that he had already stated to, to his disciples previously. He stated before that I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, and here he declares, I am the true vine. In a sense, what he's saying is, I am the real, genuine vine. Jesus is pointing his disciples to an imagery that they would have been familiar with at that time. In fact, the grape vineyard was very, very well uh, familiar to a lot of the disciples at that time. In fact, so much has been mentioned in the Old Testament regarding the vine, especially in, in, in chapters like Psalm chapter 80. And I'm just going to kind of read a few 
uh, verses from this. He makes a statement here in, in Psalm 80, the psalmist David, actually I think it's Asaph at this time, restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its bows. She sent out her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, and visit this vine, and the vineyard which your right hand has planted, and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. You see, the disciples would have been very familiar with this passage, as one of the main fruits in, grown in Israel was the grapevine. And, and one of the things that's interesting is that the grapes, ultimately in the Old Testament and throughout all of Scripture, have been a reference to God's judgment many times and also God's care and provision for his people. Jesus is the true vine, meaning he is the deliverer and savior of Israel that they were crying out for. Just as he is the ultimate blessing in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that in you will all the families of the earth be blessed, Jesus is that blessing that Paul quotes in Galatians, that in you will all the nations be blessed. Jesus is the blessing that comes from Abraham and the vine that pleases the Father. Here in the text we see that the Son is the vine the disciples are joined to, whereas the Father is the vine dresser who cares for the branches and he works to purify and to cleanse them. I want you to listen to what Bible history and custom states about this text. Listen to what he says. It says, Before the arrival of springtime, the keeper of the vineyard prunes off every superficial branch, every branch that is sickly or feeble, so that the sap may flow into the healthy ones that will bear fruit. The branch that is located nearest the trunk or the root usually bears the most grapes. Think of the application and implication of that. The argument spelled out here by different commentators is whether or not the branches that are mentioned here in chapter 15, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. A lot of commentators dispute whether these are believers or false converts. The point of the text ultimately here is to abide, to abide in Christ, rather than whether a person is a true disciple or not. There are fruit-bearing and non-fruit-bearing trees. Listen to what Rodmacher states about the two main views of this text. There's the justification salvation view, which says the vine dresser is taking two actions on the branches in verse 2. The fruitless branches are removed while the fruitful ones are pruned. Symbolically, the non-fruiting branches of verse 2 and removed branches of verse 6 are non-believers within the visible church who appear to be believers, but whose lives are spiritually fruitless, immature, or carnal Christians. For example, one commentator says, the healthy fruit-bearing branches represent genuine Christians. We are not saved by works, but works are the only proof that faith is genuine, vibrant, and alive. James 2.17. Fruit is the only possible validation that a branch is abiding in the true vine. Thus, the absence of fruit for him demonstrates the absence of life. And since abiding is necessary for fruitfulness, failure to abide means failure to believe, to be saved, to possess life. Listen to the next view. The next view is the sanctification salvation view. These are the two main views in this text that many commentators split on. The unfruitful branches symbolize superficial Christians initially cared for by God and then eventually disciplined. Schaefer is an early proponent of this view and says abiding within this passage, referring to communion with God and not union because the passage's focus is on the believer's walk. Further, he does not see action on the branches in verse 6 
as an issue of union, justification, salvation, but communion, sanctification, salvation. A believer's failure to abide and thus bear fruit leads to the loss of fellowship and discipline from God that may include weakness, sickness, and even physical health. We see that in James 1, 13 through 15, 520, and 1 Corinthians eleven thirty 30 through 32. Now you're probably wondering, well, Pastor Roman, where do you side on this? And this is what I've really been struggling with all week. Because here's the interesting part. I called a few people up to give me some pointers on this, and they both had different answers. It's amazing, because one of the things in this text that really I think many of us miss is that the point is to abide. And there's severity that is dealt with a person that does not abide. If, I've, if I were to be honest, I'd probably lean a little more towards the justification salvation view, but I, because I see the text and it says, in me, I assume that that person is a believer in Jesus Christ. I believe that that person positionally stands in alignment with Christ, though he's living a fruitless life. We're going to talk a little bit about that. In fact, what's interesting, in, in verse 2, the phrase, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Prunes in the Greek is closely related to the word clean in verse 3, when he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, if you're going to look back, and this is why it's important to interpret Scripture with Scripture, rather than reading into, into Scripture your interpretation. One of the biggest problems I believe all pastors deal with is reading in their theology into the text. It's one of the biggest mistakes we make. I assume this because I believe this. Well, you have to deal with the text in its context. And John has a longer context than just chapter 15. So if you look back, in John 13, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And look, and look who's among them. Judas is among them. Judas is among them. He says this in verses 10 and 11. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Does he stop there? But not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. In fact, what's interesting is Judas is gone in chapter 15 because he had already been on his way to go betray Christ. So Judas is not part of the group that Jesus is talking to right here. So here's the question we have. Why, why would he make the statement in verse 3, you are already clean, and then tell us to abide? I mean, why tell someone to abide in Christ if you're already clean, and then warn them that branches are cut off and destroyed. Because whether or not you, you and I, we stand positionally with Christ does not mean that we can't live a fruitless life. Just because you name the name of Christ does not mean that you don't have a fruitless life. In fact... The second thing we're going to look at is the application, and this is really going to be the thrust of the text here, and we're going to really work through a lot of the implications of what does abide really look like? What does it really mean? Because what happens is when we use these terms, they are ripe with meaning, and you know what happens to many of us? We misapply them. And the reason we misapply them is because we read in what we think abide means. If you were going to go around the room and ultimately the churches in the area, and you were to ask different people, if I were just to do an interview, what do you think Jesus means by abide? How many different answers do you think we'd come up with? Many, right? As many as we'd ask, we'd probably have that many answers. Why? Because many times, what you and I do with a word in Scripture is we assume the definition. And we assume that our definition is the one the text is talking about. So what I want us to do is I want the Bible to define what abide means, not what Pastor Roman says abide means. Does that make sense? I hope you want that from me as a pastor. I really do. I hope you're not wanting me to come up with a definition for the text, but rather let's pull what Jesus says in this text, okay? So an application. What are some indicators that you're abiding? But let's start with what the word means. The word itself, meno, means to remain, to stay, persevere, to continue, let me repeat that again. To remain, to stay, to persevere, to continue. 
Throw out a strong word. So, so, so you mean to tell me, Pastor Roman, before we get into anything else, that Jesus is saying that I don't get to just pray a prayer, ask him to save me from hell, and then I get to just live whatever I want? Is that what you're saying? It's exactly what the text is saying. Abiding means continuing, persevering, remaining, staying. You know what a lot of Christians do? I'm good. I don't need that anymore. I got saved 20 years ago. I don't need Jesus today. Oh, I'll come for church, to church once in a while. I'll do my thing, right? I'll, 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 I'll practice my religion. But as far as remaining in Christ, what is that? I don't need that. Well, here's how we know whether we are abiding or not. And that should be the question you ask yourself because that's what Jesus keeps driving at here. Look at how many times he uses the word abide. Let's work through this text. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me. Do you get the point? What's the main word that's used? Abide. In fact, it uses abide more frequently in this text than you see believe in John chapter 3. That should tell you something, believer. This is important. You ever, as a parent, instruct your kids to do something and you keep telling them? And they keep not listening? And you keep telling them? And they still don't listen? And you keep telling them and they still don't listen? What happens? Discipline. What do you think happens to us? Discipline. So what are some indicators that we are abiding? The first one, and this is the ultimate one, because if you don't have this, you can't abide. Okay? Number one, you're born of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, the new birth apart from the flesh, in John 14, 16 through 18, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit on his behalf who will abide with us and in us. Let me tell you something right now, believer. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not the child of God. You can't abide in him because you need spiritual life. That's why the Bible's so boring to a lot of people and stupid when they look at it. It's foolish. I don't want to believe this stuff. Jesus came to earth to save me. What do I need, what do I need to be saved from? I'm a pretty good person. I go to church on Sunday. I go on Easter and Christmas if I'm one of those. It all starts by the Holy Spirit giving us new life. This is supernatural. It's a supernatural work apart from anything you and I could do. You can't bring about this new birth in your children, parents that are saved, that are followers of Jesus. This is a work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent to give us the ability to abide. Apart from the Holy Spirit illuminating work, we will not see Jesus for who he is. In fact, we can't abide with him in him because we don't know him. We will never see a need for Christ in our mind and abiding in him, continuing, persevering with him, unless the Holy Spirit shows that to us clearly. In fact, in 1 John 4.13, listen to what John says. This is actually the same apostle that wrote this. He, wrote, he writes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John later on if you're reading through the New Testament. And he says this. He says, by this we know. Okay? Look, wait a second. If I see a phrase like this, I'm going to pay attention. Okay? How do I know I'm abiding? Well, John tells us here. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So you mean to tell me I can't abide unless I have the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why religiosity is not what matters. Checking off a box saying I've done this, 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 doesn't matter. You don't have spiritual life, you can't abide, period. Doesn't matter how many religious exercises you, you perform on the outside. It starts there. If we go through the other points of abiding and we miss this one, folks, we're going to have a workspace salvation that doesn't work out. Because this is all spirit wrought. It's all internal, not external. Number two, 
How do I know? What's an indicator that I'm abiding? Obedience to the Word of God is an indicator that you're abiding, believer. In verse 10, he says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Look at what it says in 1 John 2, 5-7. through But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know... Here's another one, indicator. How do we know we're abiding in him? That we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So so how, how do you know that you're abiding? You know by living the way Jesus lived. By doing what Jesus says. There's a couple things you can't do, which is heal the sick. That's not on the list. But the things that you can do is really what we're going to talk about. In 1 John 3.24, he says this, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So let let me wrap these things together and make sure it makes sense to you. The Spirit that gives you life gives us the ability to keep the commandments of Christ. But it starts here. Because most people that try to keep the commandments of Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, fail miserably. Miserably. Because they're doing righteous works in their flesh, assuming that they are doing it by the Spirit of God. And it's a false sense of security. That's why religion is so wasted by many people. That's why religion is so empty and void. Apart from Christ, it gives you nothing. That's why so many people, they try their best to do better this year because last year was not what they wanted. Believer, you're going to have ups and downs in life. We know that. Christ knows that. But the reality is abiding in Him means I'm going to take what He says seriously. It's not a joke. It's not something, ah, I don't care about that. What's sad is a lot of people take stronger their opinion of a political commentator or some author that they really respect over what Jesus says in the Bible. It's really pathetic. We've got these people we've put up on a pedestal. Oh, well, Ben Shapiro Shapiro says this. I'm going to believe that. Guys, the Bible is ultimately the word of God. And what are we doing in putting the opinions of men above God's word? Do a lot of people that you and I listen to, do they have truth? Sure. Are they the ultimate Standard of truth? No. Even Pastor Roman's not the ultimate standard of truth. Why? Because this is what I have to live up to. Not what I think or I want. So what are specifics of keeping his commandments? We're going to go through this. This is going to be some of what you're going to cover in small groups. Love one another as Christ has loved us. Look at verse number 12 here in this text. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Remember we made the connection in 1 John that abiding means I'm keeping Christ's commandments. I'm going to obey what he says. Well, here's some things that we see here. First one, we balance grace and truth. I know we talked about that in John chapter 1. We don't just go hard after people. We balance that with grace, but we tell them the truth. Look, if I know you're dying and going to hell and I don't tell you I don't love you, But I don't need to yell at you to do it. Does that make sense? We need to balance grace and truth. Number two, understand others and their weakness. Hebrews 4.15. Look, believer, if you want to apply the word of God, if you want to keep his commandments, you need to understand people and their weakness. Jesus understands our weakness. Why does he understand our weakness? Because he was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. He gets it. Ladies and gentlemen, he gets it. The only reason he can connect with us ultimately on that level is because he actually became a man. And he had the the experience of a man. This was God in human flesh. That means that we understand that those that sin differently than we do, your sin may be different, but I'm still going to understand your weakness. 
Look, we have no right to condemn anybody. But we should understand their weakness. And by understanding your weak, their weakness, I'm not saying you approve of it. Jesus didn't understand people's weakness by just approving of it. He cared enough to address it in a kind, gentle way, but also went out and said, hey, don't go sin again. Here's another one. How do we know? Specifics of keeping his commandments. Meeting with other believers. Acts chapter 2. Let me tell you, believe this is one thing that I wish the modern church understood is so important to the essential of abiding in Christ, and yet so many people miss it. You show me a believer that's not in, in the church, that's not around other believers for a while, and I'll show you somebody that's not abiding. It's very easy to see it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. You're apart from the family of God, the word of God, fellowship with, with the people of God. You shouldn't be surprised you're not abiding. It shouldn't be a shock. It shouldn't be a shock. The early church made it a point to meet. In fact, you could tell that they love one another because they couldn't wait to gather house to house. Do we have that heartbeat? Like, I can't wait to be around other brothers and sisters and talk about the Word of God. Like, I can't wait to bring up what we're going to talk about here. Or is it kind of one of those, oh, here we go again. Oh, yeah, 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock, we got some. Are you getting it? Like, this is so different than the way we do things today. The early church is so different from us. The early church didn't understand what football was after church. And I like football. Just not sure I'll watch it this year. We'll see. They couldn't wait to be in fellowship with one another. They couldn't wait to talk about what the apostles were teaching them about Jesus. Let me, let me throw a small hint out there. I already made it obvious earlier. Like, that was their version of small groups. And you know what their version of small groups look like? Look, it's not commanded. We don't have to do this. But they gather daily. Like, they got together all the time. For us, one day is too much. Oh, God, forgive. I have one hour. I can't give that. Can't. It's too much. Lord, forgive me for my cold heart. One hour. These people wanted to be around each other. Is another indicator that you're keeping the commandments of Scripture and ultimately Christ. Financially help others. You see that in 2 Corinthians 9, Romans 15. The early church understood the need to help those that lost a lot in their confession to Christ due to their Judaism. I want you to understand, believer, you and I, we don't lose a lot when we come to saving faith in America. We just don't. We still have our jobs. Our family still loves us. The early church, when they came to saving faith, they were disowned. They were blasphemy to the family. So guess what happened? A lot of them lost their income completely. Guess what the early believers took seriously? Financially helping those in need. In fact, there was a collection made for the Jewish people in Jerusalem, the poor saints in Jerusalem, by another church that wasn't all that well off either, but they understood that we need to help them. We are indebted, brothers and sisters, to the Jewish people, particularly those that have trusted Christ. It's a big one. What's another way that we know that we're doing these things? 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are willing to have impart unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our very own souls because you were dear unto us. The text we talked about in D group. Sharing your life with other people. How do you know you're abiding? You're willing to share your life with others. And not in an AA type of thing, but truly going, hey, here's what God's been doing in my life. Let me show you. Let me share some things that God's done in my heart. Share your soul, your life, your story with other believers. Believer, don't just seek to bring unbelievers to the gospel without caring to share your heart with them. 
know what the problem with a lot of us is? When we want to share something with people that are not in the faith, we don't share our hearts with them. Look, don't put up that front like you have it all together. Look, maybe you yelled at your spouse that week. At least own it. Stop pretending you didn't do anything. And you're, you're sinless, and that person's the only sinner. You needed Jesus because you were sinful too. Newsflash, you're still sinful. You have a new nature. You have the Holy Spirit residing in you. People don't need a superficial, perfect Christian. They need a genuine follower of Christ that wants to share their life with them. They want to share their heart. Here's the thing. I think this happens to a lot of us. I know when I was working through this text and cross-referencing a lot of these things. What a lot of us do is we share our hearts with certain people. And as time goes on, because we have a certain response, we stop. I'm I'm just not going to let you go there now. You already burned me once. I'm not sharing my life or my heart with you again. I want you to remember something. If you want to follow Jesus, understand how many people he invested in and know that a lot of them turned on him at the end. I want you to be reminded of that. Every time you and I think, all right, that's it, I can't. I just can't do it anymore. I'm going to quit trying to reach other people. What's the point? Realize that Jesus gave of himself fully for you and me. Some of us, we started out our faith wanting to share the gospel with others. And what happened over time is we stopped doing it. We are comfortable with what we have. And believer, let me tell you something right now. You protecting your children from the influence of the world does not mean you don't share the gospel with other people. There's a really sick theology that a lot of us believe that we don't really think is what we believe, but we do it in practice. We believe Jesus is returning one day. Amen. Praise be to God. But I don't really need to reach people because Jesus is going to take me out. I'm going. I don't care where this this world can go to hell, literally. I'm going to be taken up. That is not what a disciple of Jesus believes, nor should they practice that. And yet that's what a lot of us do. We want the easy way out. Lord, take me home. I don't want to be here. I can't take it anymore. Look at what they're doing in media. Look at what they're doing in our culture. You know what those people need? They need Christ. That's what they need. They don't need more government reforms. We know how well those work. That's why a reform has another reform and then another reform, and it never stops. Because it's really a hard issue. It's not a legislative issue. I believe your week may not have gone well, right? You may have had a really hard week. Does that, is that what should keep you from sharing with somebody else about Christ? You see, here's what happens with a lot of us. We screw up, we sin, we ultimately fall, and we think, all right, I can't. Like, I'm not perfect, I can't share the gospel now. Did you see me yesterday? I got angry at the kids. Can't tell them about Jesus now, because, I mean, that's just not good. You know what your kids need to see? A repentant father and mother that just owns it when they screwed up. And then reminds them, Jesus is still working on me. I'm not there. I'm sorry, son. Sorry. Sorry for getting frustrated that you didn't do your chores a third day in a row. Went overboard this time. See, here's the thing. I don't know about you, but the days that I feel most alive as a believer and disciple of Christ is when I'm around other people that share their heart with me of what God's been doing in their life and that it reinvigorates my life. We talked about this the other week. There are some people, they just they give you life, man. You're around them, you, just, you get more excited about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then you get others, it's like, my word, I don't want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Look at how miserable they are. Might as well go out and have fun, man. What's the point of doing this whole thing? Seems fake. So here's the thing. 
I'm going to be very upfront about this. The guys that I have D-group with, they know a lot of things about my life. They know a lot of things that I'm working through that God's working on in me. And the same thing, I know a lot about them. You know what's really neat? When you have a really crummy week and you get together on a Wednesday night and you just, boom, right back up again. You know why? Because you know God is faithful and he uses people in your life and my life to strengthen one another. Because we share life together. This isn't just some emotional support group, if you will. It's a spiritual army that's building one another to take battle. Not just emotional support, though we all need it at times, right? We all need it at times. It's not like Jonah didn't have his pity party when Nineveh repented. He cared more about a tree than he did about the people. How could you spare them? So unfair. God calls them out for being so pathetic. The ultimate is when we're willing to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Jesus actually says here. In John chapter 15, look at this. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than what? Lay down one's life for his friends. You know what Jesus does by saying that? I'm proving to you that I have no greater love than that. That is the greatest love, and I'm showing that to you because I'm about to be crucified on the cross. Here's another indicator that you and I are abiding. Opposition from the world. Opposition from the world. In fact, the last part of the chapter, he really deals specifically with that. That the world will not appreciate that you are a follower of Jesus. I don't know why Christians try so hard to get the world to like them. I don't know why. But please understand my religious belief. Imagine the early church trying to pull that one off with his head. I get it. We have certain freedoms here in America. Man, I love, I love being in this nation. I don't want to go back to Ukraine. I get it. Believe me. No. I love being in this, in this country. But I think one of the saddest things that a lot of us do is we try so hard to get the world to like us. And you know what happens? We're not abiding in Christ when we do that. Because guess what? The world's not friends with Christ. They're not. Oh, they're friends with Jesus if he's a good moral teacher, but for them, for them to hear that Jesus is exclusive the only way, how dare you say that? The disciple that the unbelieving world loves is not an abiding disciple. Let me tell you that. Straight up. An abiding disciple is not going to be liked by the world. Doesn't mean that Christians go around being jerks to everybody. That's not what I'm talking about here. Okay? <laughs> That's not a reason to not get people to like you. What I'm talking about here is your faithful walk with Christ is going to be offensive to the world, believer. You better bank on that. You better bank on that. The disciple that is more at home with those outside the faith than they are with those in the faith is not abiding in him. Look, if you find closer relationships with people outside the church than you do with people in the church, that might be an indicator you're not abiding. Last time I checked, people that are in the world that don't know Christ are probably not going to encourage you in your walk with Christ. They're not going to go, hey, did you read your Bible today? Did you pray? Or if they do ask for prayer, it's going to be thoughts and prayers, right? The one everybody mentions after something happens. The stances we take on moral purity will not be popular in the world, believer. They won't be. The stance on abortion will not be a popular one with the world, but we still fight for the unborn. But here's the thing, believer. If you're going to fight for moral purity, be someone that lives moral purity. Don't take up that banner if you don't want to fight it by being consistent yourself. Don't go telling everybody else how they need to be morally pure while you yourself are not exemplifying that. One of the reasons why parents see their children fall away from the faith because mom and dad told them what to do, but they didn't do it themselves. You want to know the fastest way to turn your children away from the faith of Christ is tell them one thing that they need to be doing every day, but do the same thing, but different now, yourself. Be a fraud. Oh, son, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be looking at that. What are you doing, Dad? 
Men, this is important. The disciple that abides knows apart from Christ in him dwells no good thing. Listen, believer, if you know you're abiding in Christ, you're going to know, hey, there's nothing in me that's good apart from Christ. The world is going to look at you and tell you all the time, it's really okay, you're fine. You don't need to change anything about yourself. Sure, keep sinning, keep doing whatever makes you happy. That is not abiding. The abiding disciple knows there's sin to fight and a war to be won. The abiding disciple of Christ knows that it's important to cut off and fight sin. The world pushes back by telling you it's wrong to stop whatever your heart desires. It's amazing to me how many people think, hey, you know what, this isn't that big of a deal. It's not going to hurt me that much when it comes to their sin. What they don't see is five years from now the effect it had on people around them. You know that, you know, one thing that's very obvious and easy to see is when you get into the trap of debt, you kind of see the consequences very easily once that bill goes up and up, right? But with some sins, it's hard to see what the devastating consequences are at the moment. They just, it, it just is because, you know what, there's not a, hey, here's what it's doing to my kids. It's not so obvious sometimes. Here's what it's doing to my church. Here's what it's doing to my family. Here's what it's doing to my friends. It's not so obvious. But sin needs to be killed. Remember, believer, what did Jesus die for? Sin. Because you and I are sinful people. If we were perfect, we didn't need him. We wouldn't need Christ if we were perfect. That's why he had to be perfect to pay for our sin. The abiding disciple accepts the exclusivity of Christ and why she or he or she faces opposition from the world for being narrow-minded. Listen, believer, if you're going to tell people that Jesus is the only way, expect opposition. And don't go play the game, well, there might be some other ways. If you're going to play that maybe some other ways, you're not abiding, okay? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Period. End of story. If you believe anything the Bible says, then you know it's exclusive. There's no, ah, well, that's okay over here. That, that, yeah, that, yeah, they kind of sort of get it right. They added a few other things, maybe somebody else. Jesus is the name above all names. He's the one we declare. Exclusive. You know what doesn't get opposition in this world? Oh, you know, it's whatever you believe, man. You're good. Your truth is your truth, man. You don't need to worry about it. What do you mean Jesus is the only way? How dare you? How dare you tell us Jesus is the only way? You're a narrow-minded bigot. Oh, you don't expect that one coming, right? What's the problem with us? We want everybody to like us. I don't want you to be offended by the fact that I'm going to tell you Jesus is the only way. So I'm going to try to sugarcoat it somehow. There's no sugarcoating it. Jesus is either it or he's not. There's no Jesus plus anything else. It's Jesus alone, faith alone in him. The abiding disciple knows that all who live godly will suffer persecution because it robs others of their happiness and support for sin. You know that you and I, if we stand with the things that Scripture says, they're going to be things that are opposing us constantly. From government legislation to personal people that you know. And let me tell you, believer, if you want to know if you're abiding or not, if you have no opposition in this area, you might want to check. If you've got nobody telling you you're doing anything wrong when it comes to trying to see Christ for who he is and live the word of God, then you might want to check to see if you're abiding. Because the world will be opposed to those that are faithful disciples of Christ. Period. When it comes to bearing fruit, Jesus makes an important statement to the Pharisees. In fact, he says this to the to Pharisees that said that he cast out demons by Satan. He says, a tree is identified by its fruit. 
If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. So you want to know whether you're bearing fruit or not? The things that come out of your mouth will tell you that. The things that you live out will tell you that. It's very clear. When Jesus warns about false teachers, he's saying, watch what they live and what they teach. It's one of the reasons why it's important, believer, that you know good sound doctrine. Because good sound doctrine is key to abiding in Christ. There's a lot of false doctrine out there. Lots of it. And we can't name it all in one sermon. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of people that say, God wants your best life now. You need to be a millionaire. Here's what you need to do, and God will bless you. And then I go through Scripture, and I'm reading, I'm going, where? I don't know where they're finding that. Jesus tells Peter, Peter denies him. Later on, the Holy Spirit sent Peter goes and is a faithful disciple of Jesus. Guess what happens with Peter? He's crucified upside down. Wow. There's a blessed life, right? According to that version. You mean to tell me there might be hardship? There might be losses in this life that I don't want to experience? Yeah. That's exactly what we're saying here. Does that mean that God wants us to not enjoy anything in life? No, of course not. But the reality is anything that God gives us is there for his purpose, not for yours. He didn't put you on this earth to enjoy yourself. It's not about me. About him? Yeah. So, we're going to finish here. Jesus makes a statement. He says that he wants us to have full joy and his joy to be our joy. He says that later in the chapter. I think it's verse, 14, verse, verse number 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. It carries the idea of someone that has something that motivates them. Or brings gladness to them. If you want to know whether you have the joy of the Lord, does he bring you gladness? Does he motivate you? When a person says, I want joy, the question is, is it their joy that they want or they want the joy of Christ? Because what makes you happy would be different than what makes him happy. And ultimately brings him gladness. It goes deeper than just an emotion. It goes to the heart of a person and what brings him or her motivation and excitement. In fact, counting it all joy when we go through hard things should be something that you and I pay attention to. Because what we're motivated by during that time will indicate where our joy is. Let, let's take a very easy example, and then we'll close this morning. Happiness itself is very different from joy because it's fickle. Certain things that make you happy today don't make you happy tomorrow. I got this new iPhone, right? I remember the first time I had an iPhone, man. It was just like the best thing on the planet. I'm like, I can't believe I, I feel rich, man. I got an iPhone. This piece of junk Android for years. But anyways, first iPhone, right? I was thrilled. I was excited. Guess how long that lasted? A few days. And then I felt like a dud. Why? Because there was a newer model that came out. And I had the older one. See, that's how it is. That's fickle. It's not real. It's not real. You know what joy is? Everlasting joy, the joy that comes from Christ, it's something that motivates even in the hard times. Even when you don't feel like you really like what's going on. It motivates you because you know what? You want to please him. You find motivation in being a disciple of Christ. That's why some of you... When adversity hits in your life, you don't tuck and run. You actually are like, let's go, bring it on. Let's go. I've done this before. You're not afraid of conflict. You know why? Because you know God's going to get you through it. Some of us, we just, oh, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with this. I'm not going to be happy with this decision I'm going to make. It's not about happiness. It's about joy. And joy is worth fighting for because that joy is found in Christ. And if you're a disciple of Christ, you're going to have that joy. You're going to have him. He's the ultimate source of joy. So in conclusion, here's the question I have. Are you connected to Christ? Are you connected to Christ? 
Can you say that you're abiding in him? Let me be honest. How was this past week? How'd you do? And a lot of the things that we discussed this morning. Have you been doing what he says and keeping his commandments? Have you read enough of the Bible this last week to find something that he told you you should do? And um, I'm waiting for Sunday. Pastor's going to tell me something to do. Give you a lot. I don't know if you can handle all that. Do you find this whole thing abiding a bit strange? Because it makes no sense. Why would it be so important? I mean, you kind of like coasting in your Christian life, like, ah, I don't really need to worry about this. Listen, believer, if this doesn't matter to you, then you need to understand there's something else that's important that you need to check, is the Holy Spirit residing in you. If this doesn't in any way apply to you, then you need to understand, do I have spiritual life at all? Because the disciple of Jesus Christ is going to be moved by this. They're going to want to follow their master, follow the teacher, follow the rabbi, Christ, the Messiah. I don't want to give anybody in here false assurance of salvation. One of the things that really I struggled the most in this text was really wanting to make sure that I draw the right application because it's so heavy in this text. I don't want to give somebody a false assurance of salvation, be like, oh, you know what, it's fine. You're still a disciple. I've seen you kind of do certain things in the church. You must be saved. Nor do I want to cast doubt on somebody that is a genuine follower of Christ that falls constantly and knows that they're struggling and is hurting right now. But they want to be more like Christ. They really want that. I pray that God does the work in each of every one of our hearts. I can't give you that assurance. Only he can. Only his words can. One of the assurances we saw earlier is that if we keep his commandments, we know that we abide in him. If that's important to you, then you can have a solid assurance that, you know what, I'm doing what God says, and that means that I'm abiding. In the areas that you're not doing that, you got to work on that. you got to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, work on those things. I pray that God does a work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit and gives us delight for Christ so that one day we're presented with joy before the throne of grace. I want you to listen to this last text, and we're going to finish today. Andrew, I'm sorry, no song today. Jude 24 and 25, look at this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Jesus is going to have joy over us, believer. I don't think we see that many times in scripture. Look at this. To God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Amen.